Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. When I talk to couples about sex and sexlessness, it's a fascinating thing out here because it's often avoided in the context of the marriage, but it doesn't mean that the people are not having sex. So there is tons of cheating that happens. I mean, on the one hand, there's almost been like a cultural mandate, especially for men, to be able to have lots of sex outside the context of their marriage. And yet there's been very little kind of understanding of how to actually talk about it within the marriage. So yes, yeah, sex is a big thing out here because not many people talk about it. Lots of people are having it outside of the confines of, of their marriage. And a lot of people just literally do not know how to even begin that conversation, Trini. And these are people who are out there in the world, you know, killing it in various ways. But there's no vocabulary. There's no understanding of how to talk about it. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Allison, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much, Srini, for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out about you because you reached out to me via LinkedIn. It turns out you've been a, been a longtime listener. You have a new book out called Rethink the Couch, all of which we will get into. As you know, I like to start with unusual questions. Uh, so I want to start by asking you what social group you're a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on where you've ended up today? Yeah, so I I would say that when I look back at high school, I was very much as I was in high school, as I am today. So I grew up in New York City for the first 16 years of my life, and I went to a very small private school. And so with that kind of environment, I was very selective in terms of who I was friends with, which I think is very much still kind of part of who I am today. So I think the people you know who are in my inner circle are very, very close, but I, I am quite kind of selective just, just by the nature of being introverted. But one thing I think growing up in New York City did in terms of the environment, but also kind of the social circles, is that it really exposed me very early on to being friends with very diverse groups of people. 
And then when I was 16, I moved to San Diego and I started working on a farm for a Japanese family. I was going to a big public school. So it really shook up kind of my social circles. And I was not just, you know, exposed to people from diverse backgrounds in terms of like who I was friends with at school. But I also, from my experience of working at this farm stand, I started to be exposed from, to people with various backgrounds in terms of various jobs that they were doing and various cultural backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera. And so I would say when I look back in my high school years, it was an exposure to diversity that really kind of helped shape who I am, which is very much still part of who I am today, living out in Asia. It was very much the same as socially as I am today, which is very much on the introverted side, but I have a very close group of friends. And I would say that it really allowed me to kind of like talk to different groups of people and yeah, just use different, different forms of dialogue to try to connect with people. Yeah. You, uh, I think one of the things that strikes me is that the move in high school, and you may have heard my conversation with Lydia Denworth, uh, on the psychology of friendship, uh, because you and I have that in common. I moved right after my freshman year in high school. And I always felt that that was this incredibly disruptive experience to my life, even though you know, my sister finally got on my case. She's like, you got to stop complaining about this. And then I kind of realized, okay, yeah, I didn't get to have that continuous experience. My sister did, but she didn't get to have the experience of growing up all over the world that I did. Um, so, you know, given your background as a therapist, what is the impact of that? Um, what do you think is, are both the positives and the negatives that come from that? I, I, you know, I love this question, Trini, and I love also that you're expressing kind of the difference that your sister had versus you. So it was very much similar kind of to me. So I had a brother who was four years older. And so by the time we actually moved to San Diego, he was already in college. So he never experienced the move from New York City to California. And so I think when we step back, the first thing psychologically to note is something that you and I have already gotten to, which is that even siblings will respond differently to these sort of experiences. And I would argue even identical twins would would respond differently to to these moves. And being married to one, I can tell you, I have my my mini study at home that my husband also had a move at 16 with his identical twin, and they responded very differently. So psychologically, we never really know like what's going on. Is it nature? Is it nurture? Like what actually what actually affects people's responses to these big moves? So for me, the move from New York City to California was anything but disruptive. It was like the most welcomed warm hug I had received at the age of 16. Growing up in New York City, again, was was exceptional in some ways insofar as being connected with different diverse groups of people, just the experiences of being in a city that was so awake and and alive culturally in many ways. But I really always had this feeling that the world was bigger than just New York City. Um, and in fact, bigger than just the USA, I would come to find out. And so when, when I moved there, I had already had the mindset that this is something I really want. So I think when we look psychologically, again, there's, there's a bunch of nature and nurture that we don't know exactly how that interacts, but I think that the psychology of the kid at the time of the move does really affect how the move is going to unfold. And it's not just the actual mindset of the child, but I think it's how the parents also talk about the move itself. 
So my father was extremely positive about this move. And I remember that very vividly. In fact, I remember walking to a movie theater in New York City and he was just lighting up with the idea of living in California. And that stuck with me still to this day many, many years later. My mom went a little bit more kind of kicking and screaming. And for some reason, I guess my dad's impression of the move resonated with me more that I wanted to do it. He was really lit up about it. So that I think, you know, affects it very much. And in terms of the other kind of, you know, psychological factors, I think it does go back to your first question about how we connect with certain social groups. So because I always had that sense that I was introverted, but I was introverted in a way that I could make deep friendships and and few deep friendships. I always had that confidence that I didn't need to kind of amass a big group of friends. I didn't need to kind of be the most popular one in the group. I just needed enough that I could do well enough in school. I could have enough friends and I would just sort of embrace this experience of going to what felt like a different world. So, you know, of course, I, you know, I, I spent 12 years living in Hong Kong and then I moved to Singapore and everyone understands that Hong Kong and Singapore, they're two different countries, right? They're two different groups of people. But I think people underestimate actually in the United States. And I wonder, you know, if you feel this way, how a place like New York City and California are entirely different cultures. So, yeah, I think the psychology of it is, is, is really baked into who the individual is, how he or she views the move, what's impressed upon the person by the parents, how much the person expects to kind of connect and what the experience ultimately ends up being. And mine, mine was exceptional, Srini, because I ended up working for this family in Rancho Santa Fe in San Diego on this beautiful uh, farm stand. And it just changed my life. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, I mean, I think that if there's anything that, you know, I'm just thinking about my own experience and reflecting on it based on what you said is, I don't think I was necessarily open. I kind of was like your mom. I went kicking and screaming uh, because Mm. I felt like I was being pulled out of, uh, a situation that I wanted to stay in, uh, mainly because of my my band director and a music teacher that was incredible, um, who's, who's, you know, work with me still to this day influences my life in tremendous ways. Uh, so one of the things that you say in the very beginning of the book, and I this really struck me, was that you said that I've always felt more in tune with people and lifestyle of Asia, a collectivistic society, and I enjoy interacting cross-culturally. It's striking when you meet someone from abroad from the same city. And I feel like you're in a cross-cultural exchange. I have at times felt more connected to the distant foreigners I met than to my own countrymen. This is one of the many mysterious threads of living abroad. I feel more at home in Asia. Um, which is such a, a strange thing to say for an American person because I have friends who... One of my best friends, like, I always think about the idea of traveling with him to a country where somebody doesn't speak the language. And I think he would lose his mind. Like, I remember when I sent him a video of the traffic in India, he's like, oh, my God, I would never do that. I'm like, dude, you realize there's a whole world outside of this, like, you know, bubble of white privilege here that we experience in Colorado, right? Um, But tell me, why is it that this is your sort of perception? Like, what do you think that comes from? You know, I love that example because. It's, you know, I'm almost wondering whether I should tell you I spent a month traveling in India by myself when I was 20 years old, because at that time, you know, I remember telling people that I just needed to go to India and I needed to go there and travel by myself for a month. And people thought I was crazy. And so when I look back, Shrini, I think that this has been a fire that's been burning in me from such a young age. So that quote that 
you, you pulled from the book is from a chapter in which I'm working with a man who is a trader. So he's coming from Wall Street, right? He's coming from my hometown of New York City. And I'm sitting in the therapy room with him in Hong Kong. And I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, okay, this man is from New York City. I'm from New York City. And yet I feel so much more at home with my feet on the ground here in Hong Kong, here in Asia. And so if I roll back the clock and I think, gosh, you know, where, where is that from? I would say that there's probably something, you know, that goes back well beyond my birth that, you know, is beyond, beyond my, my wisdom. But I can certainly trace it back to being 16 and moving to California, working for this Japanese family and just sort of feeling that they were doing things differently. They were doing things in a way that was very different from the American culture that I was swimming in, right? I've, I was born American. I was born in New York City, lived in California, but essentially it was, it was everything American from a very young age. And so when I started working for the Japanese family and I thought, gosh, you know, the way that they interact with each other is different. You know, they use less words to express certain concepts or they're more interested in kind of the relationality of things or in the harmony between people or the harmony between people and nature. And so from a very kind of, I would say from, from a very young age, there was this curiosity of like, what is this place, this, this place that I have a taste of that seems so different? And so basically what ended up happening is that when I worked for the Chinos, the, the family in San Diego, there was a very deep fire, I think, that was lit within me, which is that at some point I've got to go live in Japan. So everything was focused on Japan. And so I put myself through college. So I worked my way to, to, to get my degree. And I thought to myself, you know, if I'm working this hard, Right. I'm working all these jobs so that I don't have to pay the U.S. government for, for college loans. It's effectively my money. So I just want to finish college early and I want to go to Asia. So that's what I did. I finished my degree early and I figured out that the amount of money I would have to make to go out to Asia for, you know, whatever it was for a few weeks at the time would be the same amount that I would have to pay for an extra semester at school. So I ended up going to Singapore, Hong Kong and Japan. And I remember just landing in Hong Kong and just looking around and just being mesmerized and thinking, what is this place? You know, this place that I've dreamt about, about being in Asia. And it's just, you know, the skyscrapers, but the Taoist temples. And it was just all, all so interesting. And so I ended up going to Hong Kong, Singapore, and then Japan. And I thought, again, everything is focused on trying to get out to Japan. But ultimately what happened, Trini, is that I went back to New York City and I knew I wanted to be a therapist and I knew that I wanted to be a therapist again, just out in Asia and not, not just kind of having, you know, Buddhist statues or mandalas in, in my therapy room in New York City. And so I thought to myself, you know, what is it that is about this place? Right. Like, so when I put myself back in the therapy room with that quote that you pulled from the book, like when I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, I actually have to be in Asia. What is it about it? And I think I've boiled it down to first something, you know, I think just sort of mystical that I can't put words around that I just feel like my, my feet belong here. But I think it's the value system. I think I realized that there were certain things as an American, I would never, I would never be able to shake and I would never maybe even want to shake. So for example, you know, just sort of the, the kind of boldness 
right? Of raising my hand, of kind of believing in myself, of, you know, being the entrepreneur who's kind of crazy enough to think I can, you know, have a vision and, and execute and all that stuff and the creativity. But I think it was ultimately the value system out in Asia. I really appreciated the emphasis on family, on humility, on harmony. And, and that's kind of what led me to that therapy room in Hong Kong where I'm sitting across from this man who I just sort of think, hmm, I'm connected with you in a way because we're both from New York City. We're both American, right? Like he's from Wall Street. I've been to Wall Street. I, you know, I think anyone listening can visualize what Wall Street is like if, if you've seen it, at least in the movies or been there. But no, that's not my home. Like Asia is actually my home and the value system out here is much more deeply resonant. And I've continued to use that throughout my 15 years of being in Asia, which is that the experience of, of working cross-culturally, of interacting cross-culturally has never stopped amazing me. Mm. Wow. Well, speaking of the, the value system, I, I think this probably won't surprise you that this actually was one of the first things that caught my attention because I've alluded to this on the show numerous times. You said in Asia, many people seeking help are still considered crazy and become a liability to the good name of their parents. Seeking help for mental health issues simply isn't acceptable. And it has been that way for decades or centuries even. Many clients of mine kept it a secret from their friends and family that they were seeing me regularly. I, and of course, that, that struck me as somebody who grew up in an Asian family. You know, I mean, it's funny because people think Asia, they don't think India, even though it's on the same continent. But, um, this very much the same sort of value system that I grew up with, you know, to your point, like, I think there is this really interesting upside to this as well, which is the emphasis on failure. And I'm sure you've probably read the geography of Western thought just based on the way you're, you're explaining all of this. But tell me about that. Like, is that changing with you know, each generation? Um, because I started to see that changing I think right in my generation, when I started to see this narrative change was when friends of ours started getting divorced and their marriages started mm. ending. And that was, I think, the idea of going to therapy suddenly seemed acceptable. Um, but it, but like my parents' generation, forget it. Like, you know, exactly what you said. If we told my mom to go see a therapist, she would say we're crazy or, you know, we would be told it's for crazy. Yeah, it's it's a great, great question. So one of one of the reasons, Shrini, that I wrote this book is that I I did want to shine a light on the stigma that still exists out in Asia, undoubtedly, as it relates to mental health. Now, I think if we look broadly at the world, there's still a lot of stigma. And I would argue that even in a place like the United States and Europe and places that might be kind of a bit more focused on mental well-being and, and having perhaps less of a stigma than there is out in Asia, that different mental health conditions, I think, are coded differently. So telling someone you're depressed in the United States and telling someone you're depressed out in Asia they might be perceived differently, and I'll go into how and why, like as it relates to your question about the evolution of of, of stigma and, and mental health treatment throughout the years. And yet, there are still certain mental health conditions 
for example, like schizophrenia or like some of the psychotic disorders or some of the personality disorders, that I would say that there's still a long way for most places in the world to go to to really understanding kind of these conditions and reducing the stigma around it. So just to be clear that I, I don't think there's like a, you know, binary that there are places in the world that there's no stigma and there are some places that are stigma. Like stigma exists every place in this world still as it relates to mental health conditions. It's just to the degree and kind of what support is available. So one of the reasons that I wanted to write the book is again, yes, to show, to show the stigma that still exists out here and yet to also make the argument that it's not just a reduction of stigma that is going to help people to feel supported. The type of support that's offered really does matter. And so when we're talking about reducing stigma out in Asia, the biggest shift that really happened was during the pandemic. And so during that time, I was working in Hong Kong and I was working nonstop. So at that time, I was probably seeing, you know, seven or eight people, individual clients a day or couples. And I was also heading the corporate psychology department at a major medical uh, company in Hong Kong. And so I was doing a lot of kind of the, the mental health workshops and, and, and different um, consultant, you know, opportunities for, for different companies. And that was the biggest shift that I saw is that people were just brought to their knees, that they had been suffering in a way that, yes, maybe in generations past, for sure, that, you know, mental, mental, mental illness and mental health struggles have always been around because the brain is an organ, right? So if you believe that the heart can get unwell, right? Or other organs can get unwell, then of course the brain can get unwell. So it's always been the case that people in every corner of the, the earth have, have struggled with mental health conditions at various times. But during the pandemic was really when I think everyone sort of, th there was just a very deep collective reckoning that we had to talk about it, that silence was no longer an option, that pretending, you know, in your community or with your family of origin that everything was fine was just no longer an option. Now, the value of harmony is critical, I think, in most Asian cultures. Would you would you agree, yeah. Shrini, that within the Indian community as well, that harmony? Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Like that, you, you that that's a given. Like whatever we need to do, it's to not make. We don't like to disrupt what's going on. You know? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so that I think was. One of the deep reckonings is that on the one hand, we're struggling, but on the other hand, we have to try to maintain this harmony. And so you're right that I think if we look at, you know, our parents' generation, there were probably very few people out in Asia who were seeking support. But through our generation and through the younger generations, out in Asia, what I'm seeing is that People, and I say this in the book to think about this as like a movement of evolution, but not revolution, is that people don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. They don't want to throw out their value system and just adopt a Western mindset around mental health, the way it's conceptualized, but also the way it's treated. So the evolution that's happening out here is that they're, people are not looking for what I call in the book, authenticity at any cost. 
of just, quote, speaking their truth to everyone or just sort of telling everyone about their problems or feeling like, you know, that that they have to sort of um, get treatment in the same way. And so what's happening out here, I think, is quite exciting in that conversations are starting and yet people are really fighting to retain some of the ancient wisdom that's connected with some of their ancient healing systems, that's connected with their value systems, that's connected with their rituals, and pulling on communal efforts and not just, again, working with, with the individual. And at the same time, there is still a long, you know, a, a, lo- a long way to go out here in terms of making people feel that they can get support. And it's interesting what you mentioned about your friends you know, when, the, when they've been going through divorces and that's sort of when those conversations open around the mental health support. And of course, most of my work is supporting couples. So I only support, you know, my, my work is focused on supporting people with relationship challenges. And so, you know, half my caseload, if not more at this point, is working with couples. And over the years, there's been a steady progression in my therapy room from mostly expats. So if we roll back the clock, more than a decade ago. And now I would say it's probably a small percentage that are actually expats. So I'm seeing many Asian couples who want to work on their relationship, who want to be able to, you know, model different behavior to their children, who are really digging very deeply into these issues that pretty much were swept under the rug, I think, during our parents' generation. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that's the thing I noticed during the book is, is that so much of this was centered around relationships. Uh, and for the sake of this, let, let's get into that, because I think that so much of this was so eye opening to me, even though I'm not married. Uh, it just was kind of a reality check, I think, in so many ways. You said that many people in long term relationships may not realize how common it is to fall in and out of love over the years. People change and challenges and joy vary across the seasons and cycles of life. This is sometimes when psychoeducation as a therapist is key to let people know this is normal phenomenon. It's not the same as wanting to end a marriage. And at the same time, it sounds like, you know, infidelity is kind of culturally accepted based on some of what you wrote. Um, talk to me about that, like particularly this idea of, you know, falling in and out of love. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting that that passage from the book I've gotten so many people who have written to me about, it was like this, you know, I get these emails like, this is just eye opening. What do you mean that, you know, we, we can fall in and out of love and that doesn't mean that we want to end our marriage. So yeah. So let me, let me step back. So I think the, the fairy tale goes something like this, that you and I meet, we fall in love, we get married, you know, we have this incredible wedding. Everything just seems up and, and wonderful and we're just in love for life. And if we're not, then we must probably be in trouble. And we, that must mean that we need to get divorced. And that is a complete farce. Like that, I don't, I don't know, you know, I'm sure I could write a separate book about where, where that's rooted in, but that is a complete farce. So the way that it goes for many people, and again, this is culturally, you know, dependent. There, there are different iterations. And I know that your parents, you know, had an arranged marriage. So you're very, you're very aware, Srini, more than most people, right? That, that we come together and we marry for various reasons, not, not just necessarily for, for the love itself. But the way that it goes for most long-term relationships 
is that the love will ebb and flow. And just because the love at certain points, right, during certain parts of the relationship that might be more stressed or there might be more, you know, responsibilities or, you know, people might just be kind of in different places, just because two people are not in love with each other at that point does not mean that the marriage needs to end. So part of what I do with, with my, my couples and when I meet individually is that because so many people come in with that idea that I first mentioned that, oh, you know, I'm, in, I, I'm not in love with my partner. Therefore, I think the marriage needs to end is that I do lean on the psychoeducation to explain that marriage is, is like a marathon, right? It's not a sprint. It's not a sprint that you're just kind of jazzed up with love the whole, the whole time you're running. And so if you look at marriage like a marathon, you're going to see that there are these points of exhaustion. There are these points that you're going to want to, quote, give up and throw the towel in. But why don't we step back and look at, first, that this is a normal thing that happens, right? So why don't we normalize that every couple, no matter where you are in the world, no matter if it started as a, quote, love marriage or an arranged marriage, there are always couples that their feelings of, of intensity will wax and wane throughout the, 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 their lifetime together. Second of all, why do you feel that this love has reduced or, 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 or kind of gone away? And so the couple that I speak to in the book, there's a line in it, and I can't remember the exact line, but it's something about they come into my room and, and they basically have just avoided each other for years. And the wife is just thinking, that's it. My husband doesn't love me anymore. This must end. And the husband's thinking the exact same thing, which is, by the way, something I see all the time in couples who are loveless, that there, there's just, you know, this wall of assumptions that the other person must not really still at all have feelings for the other person. And therefore, you know, it must end. But with this couple, I say they're loveless, but their, their love is not dead. And so I think if people just first normalized it, it would be a massive exhale that everyone goes through this. And then the second thing, and this is where therapy can be so helpful, is to step back and understand why are you feeling the way that you're feeling? Might there be ways that you and your partner can learn to reconnect? And learning how to work through conflict as a couple is really important, but so too is learning how to reconnect. And it's something that nobody teaches you, right? I mean, unless you have the gift of parents who absolutely model a perfect, you know, relationship or a good enough relationship, at least, nobody knows how to do this. And so again, if we go back to this fantasy, this farce that you get married and everything's perfect for, for the rest of your life, when things are not, People will say, okay, well, what do I do about it? Might as well just divorce. And so if that's the only option, that's often what people will lean on as opposed to, can we learn different skills? Can we learn how to relate to each other differently? And I'm, I'm quite blessed, Srini, because I became the first certified relational life therapist, which is a therapy that was created by Terry Real, who's a, who's a well-known uh, couple therapist in the U.S. And it's miraculous in terms of how it helps couples throughout the years to be able to learn how to reconnect with each other. So I often feel that if two people can get into the room, like the actual therapy room where just 
the proverbial room, any room together, and they can put out onto the table what they're actually feeling, which may feel like being out of love. That's the first powerful step as opposed to being full of assumptions and coming to the conclusions that things must end. Now, the one thing I will say, and I think I note this in the book, is that there's a very, very big difference when people are out of love and they've already made their mind up that they want out of a relationship versus they're out of love and they don't know what to do about that. And so if you come into the therapy room and you've already made up your mind, uh, you know, at that point, I'm not a magician and I can't help. If you want out, you want out. But that's very different than feeling like the relationship is loveless and you're just lost. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal. 
growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, one of the things that you talk about is this idea of negotiation and boundaries. And you say, regardless of how much money or status people have, there are often bottom lines that if crossed will signal the end of the marriage. Everything else, though, is fair game to negotiate. And then you go on to say Mm -hmm. every relationship needs boundaries that ultimately reflect a set of values. No values, no boundaries, no relationship. Now, Mm -hmm. obviously, having worked in Asia, you know that (laughs) boundaries are like this Boundaries are basically not very solid with Asian families. Like it's almost like the concept of boundaries. If I told my mom that she's violating my boundaries, yeah. like my mom has no concept of that. Like there are no boundaries with her right. other than avoiding conflict. In order to avoid her crossing boundaries, the key is avoiding, you know, anything too deep. It basically is what I figured out. Yeah. Totally. And, you know, there's a, there's a man I speak to in the book. His name is Ming and his, his wife has an affair and it's a pretty gnarly affair. You know, she, she sleeps with his boss and she's humiliating him, you know, to, to the boss and they're sending these, you know, really kind of repulsive messages back and forth to the, the, the wife and, and the boss about how disgusting the husband's paintings are. And anyway, so this, Chinese uh, guy Ming, so he comes into my therapy room and he's just completely deflated. You know, his wife cheats on him, cheats on him with the boss, is humiliating him and all that. And the thing is that, and this relates actually to your last question as well, and I'll connect it with the boundaries, is that his he's not just in a loveless marriage, he wants out. But wanting out with his Chinese parents becomes a very tricky conversation, right? Because basically he's gotten married and it's prescribed that it must be for life. And so he's terrified actually to share with his parents that he wants to get a divorce because divorce still is to some extent very stigmatized out here. So, you know, two people coming together represents families coming together, right? Which represents the continuation of the family lineage, of the, of the values, et cetera. And so Ming, what, what's interesting about him is that Ming went to law school in the United States. And so he had had a taste of that very extreme individualism, right? The, the boundaries that, that you kind of point to of, you know, this is my truth and, and, you know, this is what I'm doing, mom. This is what I'm doing, dad. And, you know, you can take it or leave it. And so one of the privileges of working out here with boundaries and with people's relationships, right? Is that it's, again, it's not a copy paste from the U.S. of I'm going to share what I want or don't want and it's my way or the highway. So you're absolutely right, Trini, that there's, there's a certain delicate nature to having boundaries, I think, within the context of many Asian families, but it doesn't mean that they don't, they can't exist. It just means that they have to exist differently than they may in a place like the United States, right? Well, I'm laughing, you know, just because I was thinking about this. I had this conversation with Ishita Gupta and I was asking her about boundaries and she was like, where do you want to start? I was like, how about my mom? She was like, you're an idiot. 
Like that was kind of the the biggest weight up. She was like, of all the places we could start, that is not the place to start. I'm like, all right, fair enough. Um, You know, because she grew up with an Indian family as well. But I think the the thing you point out about divorce and being stigmatized, it reminded me of uh, one of the the girls in Indian matchmaking, which I know you saw. Uh, And it's funny because divorced Indian women literally get, it's almost like they have a scarlet letter. And what's so hilarious about this example in particular is Seema, the the matchmaker, was like, oh, it's going to be very hard uh, for her. Of all the people who are on need matchmaking, she's the only one who is now married. That's right. That's right. (laughs) That's right. It's just laughable to think that. And I always thought that was such a a horrible thing that we do to, to women, particularly treating women like they have an expiration date, I think is a very common thing in Asian cultures. Like being you know, 40 and single. I would much rather be my age, an Indian and single and a guy than a girl who is my age and single. I think it would be 10 times worse. Yes. Yeah, I I think you're right. I mean, I, you know, if I remember from Indian matchmaking, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, of course, is that the woman who divorced, she was actually a pediatrician and she had this very robust career. And and, and anyway, so, so I think that you know, it, the story was obviously told on screen in a certain way that she was this divorced woman with, you know, with a child and her, her dad was kind of pushing her to, to only marry a particular man. And so I agree with you that by extension, that women do have it harder still out in Asia in terms of, you know, the potential for divorce. But, but I do think that men still do carry a stigma if they are divorced. So when I think about, you know, this man in the book, Ming, you know, this was a guy, again, very established professional. He was, you know, a partner at a, at a U.S. law firm and all that. And he was full of tears streaming when he was looking me in the eyes, trying to role play, telling his father that he was going to get a divorce. And so if it was a woman sitting in front of me, and I've had many, they will often have to reckon with these different concepts within Asian cultures, and there's so many, there's so many different terms for it. I, I only included, I think, a handful in the book, but there are all these terms for basically like, like woman who's just expired, as you said, right? Like the throwaway women that once you reach 30, which is pretty young, if you are not married and basically on your way to having children at some point, that you are considered useless. And so there's a big, you know, I think a push out here even for women who never get married or women who never have children. There are all these like different terms that are coming out for like how they're mooching off of society, right? Or these couples who are just deciding to have two incomes and and live a pretty, you know, sweet life, but not not procreate. So yes, women I think are criticized more. But I do believe men still carry a stigma if they don't get married or if they get divorced or if they get married and they're living an enjoyable life, but they don't actually have kids um, in the same way. Yeah. Well, let's talk about something else. This is actually another thing that reminded me of another story from my own life. You said that even though it's a common challenge, it often goes unaddressed, especially in Asia, where speaking of sex openly is still taboo. And so too is Mm. seeking treatment from a sex therapist. 
there's another cultural layer in this part of the world as it is more common for grown-up children to remain in their parents' home even after getting married and many feel they lack the privacy needed for sexual intimacy. So I want to tell you two stories related to this. Please. One was a friend I had in eighth grade. He was an Indian guy. He was uh, His parents were both Muslim. And he was convinced that the only two times in his life that his parents had had sex were the nights that he and his brother were conceived, which like, oh, I thought that was how naive and absurd, sweet, yeah. right? But I mean, it's yeah. a pretty, given the family environments yep. we grew up in, that's pretty common. And then mm-hmm. recently, like I, w- I was at one of my uh, parents, family friends, they, they have a get together every Friday because they're all retired. And we were talking about a hotel in, in Rajasthan is where Priyanka Chopra had her mm-hmm. wedding. And we're all adults. Keep in mind, I'm 40 something years old and, you know, it's a $600 a night hotel. And I remember making the comment that, you know what, if I spent $600 a night on a hotel room, I would make sure of two things. One, that I was with a girl and two, that she wanted to have a lot of sex. And my mom looked at me like she literally was like, that's enough. Yeah, And I'm thinking to to myself, wait a minute, you guys all have kids. Clearly, you've had sex. You have kids who are married, who have babies. Obviously, they're having sex. Like, But it just was such a moment of recognizing how taboo it is to even talk about it. Like, I will literally, that is not a conversation. Like, talking to my parents about sex is not something that happens. I can't think of one conversation in my life I've ever had with them about Mm. anything, like nothing about, you know, safety, any of that. Yeah. You know, first of all, I just want to say that your friend from eighth grade may have been correct, right? So let's discount that there are many couples where, you know, their, their marriage does turn all, turn into a sexless relationship or pretty much it starts off that way. That, that procreation is, is kind of the only, um, inspiration, let's say for, for, for having sex. Now, here's, here's a cultural layer to this conversation just to add on to. The cultural layer that you already shared that this is one of the ways that I have had to learn to be less American in the therapy room in Asia. So when I started working with people out here and I would work with people's relationships, naturally, I thought we're going to be talking about sex a lot, right? Because sex is a big part of being in a long-term relationship and it's important for, for various reasons for, for people. And I, at the beginning, would meet with couples, with Asian couples, and I would just directly ask about sex. And I would say, okay, tell me about the last time you had sex, right? Which is just kind of, in in some ways, a textbook thing a therapist would ask because it focuses the question. And I can pretty much guarantee at least usually the man or one of the, the people will remember quite quite uh, vividly the last time they had sex. And I would ask that question or some iteration of it. And I would just get this blank stare. And it was not just a blank stare as in like, there's no response, but it was just this kind of deer in the headlights kind of blank response of being terrified. And so in that way, I've had to be kind of less American, less direct in terms of how I ask these questions about sex. Now, you're absolutely right that this starts from a very young age that is still in Asia. And I think, I think this is absolutely still true, you know, for, from, from this generation, from the younger generation, that sex is often not talked about within the family. Now, there 
is an argument perhaps to be made that sex might be talked about too much in in, in certain Western families, but but I'll leave that for now, right? I mean, there's perhaps been an overcorrection and and a lack of boundaries, to use that word again. But in any case, most people, I think, out here do not grow up with a vocabulary around sex. They are not aware of how it fits into, you know, a long-term relationship. They have very little education, if any, about it in school. And so I think the younger generation out here today is mostly leaning on probably social media and conversations with their friends about it. But when I talk to couples about sex and sexlessness, it's a fascinating thing out here because it's often avoided in the context of the marriage, but it doesn't mean that the people are not having sex. So there is tons of cheating that happens. I mean, you know, the book itself is wallpapered with affairs, right? And, and various, various types of, you know, cheating. So on the one hand, there's always been like a cultural mandate, especially for men, to be able to have lots of sex outside the context of their marriage. And yet there's been very little kind of understanding of how to actually talk about it within the marriage. So that's actually a real privilege I feel when I work with couples out here is working particularly on the sexlessness part of their relationship or what is often an asymmetry in the marriage around sex. So there's one group of couples who are sexless and that's more than you think, right? So at the time of writing the book, if I googled sexless marriages, it was up to 4.4 million uh, searches. I'm sure it's even higher at this point. So many, many couples are sexless when they come in. But there's often another group of people where there's this asymmetry, there's this discrepancy in desire and kind of how they want to experience sex. So yes, sex is a big thing out here because not many people talk about it. Lots of people are having it outside of the confines of, of their marriage. And a lot of people just literally do not know how to even begin that conversation, Trini. And these are people who are out there in the world, you know, killing it in various ways, but there's no vocabulary. There's no understanding of how to talk about it. Well, you know, so it's funny, like I'm thinking back to my sex education lesson in school. And honestly, it was more like a science class Mm. than a sex education class. Like I just remember seeing, you know, cells on a screen like sperm, you know, basically finds a go. Okay. I don't think I actually learned anything about sex itself. Um, And, you know, I I think that I've always said the irony of of the Indian narrative around sex is that we wrote the damn manual on it. Right. And then we don't talk about it. Like it's so taboo to talk about it. And yet we wrote the manual. Mm. Yeah. Which is so strange to me. I blame yeah. the British, by the way. I think that if they hadn't colonized India and the Portuguese had, we would be like the Brazilians. That's a joke, obviously, but I still, you know, I wonder about that at times. Like, you know, because my, my friend was like, Portuguese military history summed it up in one sentence. They just went where the weather was warm and the women were beautiful. That was their colonization strategy. And if you look around the world, that turns out to be true. And the most liberal place in India is Goa which was colonized by the Portuguese. But that's a whole other ridiculous aside that has nothing to do with this conversation. Um, But let's talk about this, I think, as as a final place to touch, which is shame. 
because I was thinking mm. a lot about Brene Brown's work in vulnerability. And you say that shame in Asia is largely a group concern rather than an individual yes. one and occurs when there is a loss of face. It's something you referred to throughout the book or honor, yes. which refers to personal integrity, good character and the ability to conform to society's mm -hmm. expectations. The shame based roots of Asian culture can be traced back to Confucianism which valued and fostered the power of shame and taught that life's highest purpose is to seek self-perfection. Mm -hmm. So yeah. talk to me about that, especially as we think about somebody like Brene Brown, whose work around this is pervasive in American culture. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I totally respect her work and I think she's, you know, brilliant and, and has done wonders for, for, you know, work around vulnerability and shame. And at the same time, I think, unfortunately, shame has almost been extricated out of the human vocabulary. Like, it's almost become this dirty word that, like, if you feel shame, you know, it's going to mean that you end up in the gutter somewhere. Like, it's going to lead to all these terrible, terrible outcomes. And so I, I guess I view it differently. So the idea of shame, so if we, we use Brene Brown's definition, right, of of guilt being something that I do that, that I, excuse me, guilt is something that I feel bad about because I did to someone else, right? So I feel bad about my behavior, but it's not necessarily a criticism of myself, of my character. It's that I feel bad for the behavior that I did. Whereas shame, I, you know, I believe in her definition is that there's something wrong with me because I did this. And so the idea is that shame can become very toxic for the system because if I feel bad about myself versus the behavior, that itself becomes almost like a form of like a self-character assassination, right? And that can lead to all these bad outcomes. And I, I don't fully agree with that. I, I, I would personally like to push for shame to become more part of people's vocabulary when it's appropriate. And what I mean by that is that some people do do things that if they were to feel into the pain of what they did to others, and there was some pathway to healing from that, right? So I don't want people to just sit endlessly in the shame, but if there was some pathway to healing and they could feel the depths of what they had done to another person, that might actually lead to more change as opposed to trying to push away the shame and the idea that they're just feeling bad about the actual behavior. So that's just kind of, yeah, a little bit how, how I conceptualize differently. But I think if we put it in the context of Asia, so in the book, there, there's a chapter called Legacy Anxiety, and it focuses on this man, this Chinese man, Tai. And I meet him in Hong Kong, and Tai is in his 30s, and his father committed suicide when he was a teenager. And he's haunted by this, right? Like anyone who's listening who has ever had anyone close to them who's died by suicide. Like it, it, it's just something that, you know, I think continues to haunt us indefinitely. And whenever he was a kid, but even as an adult, and he would try to get an answer about why his father died by suicide, his mother would repeat this term in Chinese. And the term itself is that his father was so ashamed of his choices that 
the ancestors of eight generations could feel it. And I think that term itself points to what you're, you're pointing out, Srini, about shame out here being a collective experience. So again, I'm not pushing for people to sit in shame indefinitely, and I'm definitely not pushing for anyone, you know, to, to contemplate, you know, suicide because they feel such shame. I'm just, just the opposite, of course, as a therapist. I would do everything, you know, to, to make it possible that no one ever feels that, that kind of depth of, of, of pain and, 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 you know, feeling that they needed to attend their lives. And at the same time, what, what's interesting about shame out in Asia is that it's not just usually focused on the individual and the individual person's character, but it's about how it affects the group that the individual is a part of. And that group might be in a family setting. It might be part of a company. It might be part of, you know, some other group, but it is largely more about the group itself versus the focus being on the individual. So again, you know, is there some value in how that moderates people's behavior because they don't want to bring shame to the group? I would argue, yes. I think there probably is some powerful, you know, social moderating force behind realizing that you are part of a group and that your choices can impact what happens to the group. Again, if it gets to the point where, you know, in, in the chapter that, that it were to lead to anything, you know, extremely, you know, serious such as suicide, then I'm definitely, definitely against that. But saving space is very important concept, I think, out in most Asian cultures still. The idea that you would make choices and that you would keep the group in mind when doing things is something that I still hear probably, I'm going to say at least a few times a week in the therapy room. So again, you know, is, is shame itself a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's probably both. I think if people, again, feel it enough that they think through their choices and how that impacts other people, that can be a very powerful force for the good. But if they think about it to the point that they become such awful people and that, you know, they have to do something to the extreme, that's probably taking it too far. So is the Western concept of, of shame leading to all these bad outcomes, which means we should just take it, you know, away out of the human experience, something I would advocate for? No, because I think if people thought more about their choices and how it impacts people, it's probably a good thing. But of course, the other side of that is that it has to be contained. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I remember just journaling about this for days on end and I, I like, I don't know where I started thinking, you know, I take notes and they're all connected to each other. And, um, and I remember I said, you know, we live in an interdependent society and mm. individual actions affect collective outcomes, mm. even though we can't see that, you know, in the moment. Absolutely. Uh, so with that in mind, I want to finish with this final quote from the book and one last question. Well, two last questions. You say that culture is connected with how we see things, how we interact with the world, how we respond to our experiences, how we feel supported. It presents a prism through which to see and experience life. With that in mind, with that quote in mind, and the fact that the audience listening to this is largely American, 
myself mm. included, even though I was raised by Indian parents, what do you want people to know? About culture. Yeah. Particularly as it relates to that quote. Yeah. So what I would love for people to know is that we are all raised in the context of some culture. Now, there are subcultures. So for people listening who grew up in the United States, there are many people who may be able to view their experiences through the prism of the American culture. But that may just be one of many prisms through which they see life, right? So as you mentioned, Trini, right, you grew up with parents who immigrated from Canada. And if I remember correctly, you you were born in Canada or you were partially raised Born there? in India, spent four years in Australia, four years in Canada, seven years in Texas, California after that. Okay. So, so perfect. We're, we're like kindred spirits. So, so you would be a great example of someone who may be able to see through, see life through that prism of the American culture. And at the same time, I think it would be limited to say that's the only prism through which you see life. So I would say to people, step back and ask yourself, which are the prisms through which you're seeing life? And even if you are a fifth generation American, you know, do you know enough about your ancestors or about past cultures that that informs your current worldview? And the second thing I would say is that when you're looking through this prism, to ask yourself, what are the values that have been taught to me both directly and also indirectly? What have I seen modeled about culture that actually informs my choices today. And so that's kind of what I would ask people to do as an experiment is to step back and say, which are the prisms I'm looking, prisms I'm looking through? What are the value systems connected with those particular prisms? And how does that ultimately inform my worldview and also my choices? Now, it would be very American of me, Shrini, to say, you know, just Hold on to the ones that resonate and throw out the ones that don't. But I think being out in Asia, I would perhaps send a different message, which is feel, you know, feel into which of those values do resonate. Like, I think that's important. But to not be so quick to just throw something out without properly kind of inspecting where this came from and whether there is any kind of application, even if it is just out of respect to the generations that may have come before you? Well, as you know, I have one final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? So I think if I use your definition as a bridge, and you'll tell me if I butcher this. So if I use your definition, that unmistakable is something or someone who is so distinct that it might, that it must be from you. Is that, is that generally yeah, Shrini? That's, that's a general Your definition? Yeah. 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 I would say that if we use that definition, which I think is a beautiful one, that unmistakable has to be connected with the person's soul. And I think if it's connected with the soul, it must be about something that relates to serving others. Well, um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and your insights, well, listeners. This has been really 
eye-opening and thought-provoking. And it's really nice to be able to talk to somebody who is an Indian about so many of these things that I've experienced. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, your book, and everything else? Thank you. So if you go to rethinkthecouch.com, it has all the information if people want to get in touch and I more than welcome people's emails and, and you know, any questions or insights you'd like to share. And if you'd like to order the book, the book has been published by Penguin Random House. So you go to Amazon.com and type in Rethink the Couch. And I would be grateful for anyone who would like to read it. So thank you very much, Srini. This has been a beautiful, wonderful conversation. And thank you to all the listeners. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.